Welcome aboard and buckle up. You're now listening to Shift Happens with Jim Milloway. Now, let's dive in, go deep, share ideas, and take a good look at what we in the benefits industry can do to accelerate the shift to the member-first economy. And now, live from Zero Studios, your host, the more infamous than famous, Jim Milloway. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Shift Happens. I'm Jim Milloway. This is a podcast where we take an in-depth look at what we in the benefits industry can do to accelerate a shift to what we view as a member-first economy, right? It involves, a, it involves, if I can speak, it involves an evolved mindset using modern approaches, customer delight, data analytics, and the best possible experience to shift this industry where it needs to be. Again, my name is Jim Milloway. I'm the CEO at Zero, and I'll be your host. We have one and maybe even two really special guests today, and so I'm super excited. The first person I'm going to introduce is the Chief Health Plan Officer at Decent, Molly Moore. Uh, Decent envisions a world where everyone has the freedom to do the work where they want without sacrificing access to affordable and comprehensive health care. We also might get lucky and have Nick Soman, who's the CEO of Decent, join us as well. We were joking a few minutes ago, Nick is on an island, both literally and figuratively. He lives on an island outside of Seattle. The windstorms have taken out the power grid. Uh, he uh, was running on a generator, but the generator's no longer working, so he's on plan C. So I don't think we're going to get him on video, but it looks like we might get lucky and get Nick on audio. Molly, let's go ahead and start and start the conversation while yeah. we're waiting on Nick. I'd love for you to tell us us and the listeners a little bit about yourself. I am a healthcare nerd. I've worked in healthcare my whole career, which is now spanning the last 25 years since 1996. I have uh, worked for providers. I've worked for payers, United Healthcare, Aetna, and Blue Cross Blue Shield. I've worked for venture capital investments. I've done business development. I've sat up and stood up an innovation space in Seattle called the Cambia Grove to help the community of Seattle sort of come together around innovation. I ran a 20,000 life self-funded group, uh, a Taft-Hartley Trust. And then I came to Decent uh, almost three years ago now uh, to essentially build a health plan from scratch, which was uh, just too good an opportunity to pass up. Is, and, and decent is, is decent the most fun you've ever had? Oh, by far. Yeah, by far. It, it's also the place where I'm allowed to be myself uh, and it, the most myself I've ever been in my career. And, and I can't honestly say how much I appreciate that. Um, so I can do fun things like nerd out and talk with you about all the crazy stuff happening in healthcare without a script. So you get like the raw version of me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So Nick, can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear me? We can hear you. I'm so glad you made it. Yeah, I had some logistical issues this morning, but nothing as difficult as transforming healthcare. Right. Yeah. I love it. So, hey, before we get into the conversation, tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm the only one in my family who's not a doctor. And I grew up in a house where my parents would really talk about very little other than compassionate patient care at, at almost every dinner to the point that I was annoyed and irritated and just wanted to hear about anything else. I decided that I didn't want to go down that road and uh, 
I became an entrepreneur. I started and, and sold a internet business, scaled it to a couple million users, and then came down to build the growth team at a big company in California called Gusto. Left Gusto to start another company. I'd really resisted the siren uh, song of healthcare, but I immediately started paying more for health insurance than for rent for my family of four in Mill Valley, California, which is expensive. And I just thought, what is going on? And why is health insurance such a bad deal uh, for small businesses, including self-employed people? And that kind of put me on this journey that uh, I was lucky to make Molly our first hire. Um, I, I bring sort of an outsider's view to the space, which is probably a euphemism for I'm way stupider about this stuff than, than anybody else who's on this call right now. Um, but I also don't know what can't be done. And so it, it's been an exciting uh, journey so far to to work to try to build something that makes health insurance more affordable for small businesses. And I, I agree with Molly. This is a, a sort of a fun place to work. We're, we're mission oriented. We're working hard. Um, but I'm a weird dude. And, and, you know, I get to be myself at work. And I, I think everybody else can kind of be the same. Okay. I love that. So I'm, in a second, I'm going to ask you what you learned when you asked your, when you asked yourself that question, why is healthcare such a bad deal? But before I do that, for the people that are listening live and for the people that might come and, and listen afterwards, tell everyone, uh, either Molly or Nick, can you give us the 10,000 foot view of what decent is? Yeah, I'd love to do that, Molly. Would it be all right if I take the first shot and then you can fill in any gaps? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, technically speaking, decent is a variety of entity types, including a third-party administrator. But the thing that I think folks should understand is what we realized when we started coming into you know, the health insurance space was 90% of companies with 1,000 or more employees in this country have shifted to a self-funding model. And they're realizing both more affordable health insurance, more flexible benefits, more favorable regulation. Our task was what would it take to bring this package of benefits down market to smaller companies, uh, as small as companies the size of one, who don't have the benefit of aggregation. So we had to find a way to aggregate these folks. Uh, we're a third-party administrator that administers plans on behalf uh, of trust. Uh, we initially started working with the <clears throat> Texas Freelance Association, a long-standing association in Texas, uh, and created a benefits trust to administer self-funded plans. And we have ACA-compliant health insurance plans that are available for 40% less than market rates. Uh, we're currently serving the small business vertical with an initial focus on technology companies and startups, uh, which would include, you know, folks like ZeroCard. And we have additional industries coming soon. We sell primarily through brokers, uh, though we also sell directly. And what I'm really proud of, and then I can stop and, and Molly can fill in gaps, you know, I didn't know if we were going to be able to cut costs by 40% without giving up some quality and because our plans are built around this thing called direct primary care, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about, we're actually able to realize savings and people are delighted by the plans themselves. We have what's called the net promoter score, which is sort of like customer satisfaction of 79 in an industry where the average is 14. And we take that really seriously because the title of this webinar, Why Does Everyone Hate Their Health Plan, kind of speaks to the problem. This, this shouldn't be something everybody has to hate. And so I think our job is to kind of to not suck. And um, yeah, with that, I'd love to pass the thought, the mic to Molly for any additional thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Nick, you did a really good job covering, you know, why we are and what we are um, and why we were needed in the marketplace. And um, 
you know, a few things that I believe that I sort of carried into, um, you know, what we essentially sell as our product is um, we believe that healthcare should be more transparent. We believe that um, if possible, you shouldn't have to have an employer paying for your care, uh, meaning like we really believe that portable benefits is, is something that, that over time will, will take hold. Um, and then the other thing, uh, and, and Nick touched on this, um, is really around direct primary care. I, I truly believe in that model. We made it really the heart of, um, you know, the plans that we put together for our members. And as a result, you know, our members are more satisfied with the care that they're getting. They're getting, um, uh, sort of the right care in the right place. Um, and the, the sort of fallout and sort of the, the happy accident was people covered under our plan who, you know, entered 2020 thinking that they were just going to have a regular year, um, got a really nice surprise when they um, had access to their primary care physician uh, via text, via telemedicine, et cetera, as a result of being part of direct primary care um, when, when COVID was happening, when this pandemic sort of started. And so um, we found a lot of our, our members really getting comfort and, and understanding a little bit more about what's going on because of that direct relationship with their primary care provider. So um, there's a lot uh, that we put into it, a lot of thought about, you know, know before you go type benefits. Um, we really want to make uh, understanding how your health benefits work accessible um, to regular human brain. Um, and, and make sure that the, the relationships with primary care physicians are there and, um, I don't know, things that I'm passionate about. Sorry, I probably talked too much about that. No, no, I, I think that's great. And so I have a big, uh, so my big question I'll ask both of you is, is, is why is healthcare so expensive? And, and I'd love to get in your response, kind of your opinion on what's the ultimate failure of like, I mean, do we call the opposite of direct primary care indirect primary care? So, I mean, what's, haphazard what, yeah, what's, what's the fatal flaw of indirect primary care and, 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 and how impactful is that on why this stuff is so expensive, expensive? Nick, do you want to talk a little bit about incentives or do you want me to, to go there? I'll talk a little bit about incentives. Okay. I'm not careful. I'll talk a lot about incentives. So why don't I start by talking a little bit? And then you can say more informed things, but I can say the things that really piss me off. Uh, the, the thing that I think is the fatal flaw, to answer your question directly, is the fee-for-service model. For a very, very clear and I think pretty compelling reason, when doctors are making money on the basis of what they do to patients rather than for patients, you can expect that utilization is going to go up. You can expect that unit costs are going to go up over time, and you can expect that that end goal we all talk about of delivering affordable, compassionate patient care is really at odds with how the model works. And fee-for-service is the, the root cause issue, a, a related issue for large traditional insurance carriers is the regulatory impact of the medical loss ratio law. And I just want to spell this out. And then I think Molly will probably have some more, more thoughts. The medical ratio, loss ratio law dictates that for a traditional carrier, 
they have to spend 80 to 85%, depending on the market segment they're serving, of the premiums they bring in on healthcare-related costs. And that actually sounds kind of good when you first hear it, because it means they can't just keep all the money. But what it also means is they don't have a great incentive to be efficient, because if they actually get efficient, then what happens is they have to give the money back beyond that 80 to 85% spend. If they only spend 60% of the premiums that are brought in on health insurance, they have to give 20 to 25% of that back to members. And they really don't want to do that. And so instead you get this problem of, I've got a, a, a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. They're both smart kids, but they're seven and they're four. If I took them to a bakery and I said, hey, you can have any donut, but you only get to eat 20% of that donut, even the four-year-old would pick the biggest freaking donut he could find. And that's actually what you see in, in healthcare is that the way that they're going to make more money is by raising rates and everything else sort of works backward from that. And you, you talked about direct primary care. The reason we love the direct primary care model is honestly twofold. I mostly talk about the, the first one, but I'll give you the second one too. The, the reason for the first one is we think the incentives are better aligned with what the patient needs because when a doctor is charging a flat monthly fee to provide care, all kinds of good things happen to align the incentive between the patient and the doctor. The doctor's ideal patient in that case is somebody that pays their monthly bill, doesn't get sick. If they do get sick, they get healthy quickly. They don't need constant care because the doctor is not getting paid more money every time they need help. It's outside of the fee-for-service model. So it's way, way better alignment of incentives. And these doctors end up competing on service, and they're great at it. They're able to offer same-day, next-day appointments. They're able to offer a model that feels like concierge care, but it's actually affordable. So we were proud to wrap a plan around that. Now, the other thing that I don't talk about as much, I have these really grouchy primary care doctor parents that became miserable with the rise of big buca insurance as it took over healthcare. I remember sitting with my dad, who ended up becoming the chief medical executive of a big HMO, but for 30 years each, my parents were family practice doctors for group health cooperative in Washington state. And my dad sat at the table and he said, I just don't think my counterpart on the insurance side of our business, I know this gentleman's name, but I won't call it out on this podcast. I don't think he cares about compassionate patient care. And that really stuck with me. I was probably about 14 when I heard that. But when we look at what is happening with the DPC movement, and it really is a movement, there are all these primary care doctors that have left the constraints of the big hospital systems and they're struck out on their own. And it feels like a rebel alliance. And I think part of me wants to do this forever because this is what my parents should have figured out how to do. And they wouldn't have been so unhappy in the late stages of their career as HMO executives. Um, and so that's a long way of saying, I think, honestly, it's the alignment of incentives that, uh, that is broken. And that's what we're trying to fix. Molly, what, what would you say? Oh, man, you, you went down a long, long uh, list of things about incentive misalignment. Um, the other thing that I would say that has really sort of gotten out of control is um, the dissonance of patients to the actual cost of care. Um, the idea that um, essentially who's receiving care is not paying for care um, is troublesome. It's mm -hmm. detached uh, patients from really wanting to or pushing to understand how health insurance works. Why? Because most people get their health insurance through their employer. And 
that just sort of leads to uh, them really only being responsible or really caring about about 30%-ish, give or take, um, of the money that they're spending, right? So if you go and have an MRI, you really only care about what your cost is. Like, how much is it going to cost me out of pocket? So most people walk in the door and say like, hey, what's my out-of-pocket cost or what's my copay for this MRI? Sometimes the answer is, well, we don't know yet. Uh, We'll send you a bill in 60 days. Um, And sometimes the answer is, oh, you have a fixed copay, it's $200. And then they don't, like shoppers, the consumer only cares really about that amount. Um, And then, but the full freight of the bill is sort of passed on to the system as a whole and passed through to employers and health plans and thus becomes the cycle of the people shopping really aren't paying the full amount. So it's like going to the grocery store, getting your grocery store bill and seeing that it's 80% off and going like, why don't I get more of this? Um, and, And so there's really you know, I want more bananas. I don't care how much they cost. Um, there's really, you know, that detachment, um, uh, I think is, is problematic. One of the things that, um, I got the opportunity to do last summer. So summer of 2019 was to talk to, um, essentially high school students about healthcare economics and how it works and how it sort of makes the world go round. And, um, you know, supply and demand sort of really the base of capital economics is there's a supply curve and a demand curve. And it looks like this. Um, it's just a big X in the middle of a graph. Um, and those, those um, sort of fundamentals are sort of pushed aside in healthcare um, uh, on, on all fronts, the, the bottom is moved up or down artificially, the top is moved up or down artificially, the supply is like way outpaces the demand in some instances. And in primary care, certainly it does not hit the demand numbers. And so primary care physicians are overrun. Um, and so like from, you know, sort of, uh, economics 101, um, the model is broken just right out of the gate uh, from a consumer standpoint. So going back, James, to, you know, your very initial, hey, this is a consumer focused, um, you know, podcast, like it just misses the mark right out of the gate um, by having the employer in the mix. You know, so this is interesting, right? So Nick made a comment, right? So you guys have an astoundingly high net promoter score at 79, right? The industry, right, would expect would expect people to be in the 14 range. And and I like the words, Nick, that your parents used about compassionate patient care. So we've got a lack of compassionate patient care that's likely driving that NPS so low for most legacy players. Do we have a lack of compassionate customer care too, right? Like once I'm outside of the clinic, like if I'm a healthcare consumer, like it's it's not only that the delivery system doesn't care about me, it's it, it's like all these third parties don't care about me either. You think? I, I mean, it, why do people hate their plans, right? Because if the net promoter score is 14, 
it doesn't mean that people are kind of on the fence, right? If you're net promoter for <laughs> 14, it means like you should only be celebrating if you're working for an airline or a cable company. And you know, so why do people hate it? Is it, is it, it's not just the price, is it? And oh, Nick's on mute. I'll, that gives me an opportunity to jump in. Um, <laughs> one of the things I think that inherently sort of aggravate, uh, I've worked for health plans. I spent over a decade at health plans and um, the people at the health plans, they are actually trying to do the right thing. It's, it's like the people who are working in healthcare, it's a really hard industry to work in. They are often thinking about the consumer or the customer as you know, friends and family members, and they're often trying to do the right thing. Um, I think there are a few things that contribute to inherent sort of dissatisfaction with health plans. One is there are a lot of checks and balances. There are a lot of red tape that health plans essentially put in place that not only impact the patient's ability to do what they view as sort of a simple consumer transaction, but it also blocks the provider from doing what they ultimately want to do, which is make a decision about patient care with their patient rather than having to have this like creepy third party that's sort of in the room raising their hand, that's a health plan. So it's like, oh, well, I think you do need an MRI, but you're need to, gonna need to get a prior authorization. And that can take anywhere to, you know, from 24 to 72 hours. And you're gonna need to call your health plan. And then when a member calls a health plan, they sit on hold, they often talk to somebody who, um, you know, is completely detached from that whole uh, prior approval process, et cetera. And so everything seems disjointed um, in the in the customer experience, it's not seamless. It's not convenient. Um, and if you think about sort of those organizations that have really high levels of NPS scores, um, the uh, the one that comes to mind because it's local is Nordstrom. Everything there is seamless, right? You want to return something? No problem. We got you. You know, there's not a lot of red tape. People are friendly. There's no resentment. Um, but the whole the system as a whole, um, all of the players in the system, um, you know, seem to um, react negatively to sort of all the checks and balances. And the unfortunate thing is, um, a lot of those checks and balances are in place um, to prevent things that have happened in the past, like fraud and abuse. Um, overutilization of diagnostic care, um, you know, uh, and so, uh, you know, our, our health system is sort of uh, the economics of, as a whole and the business and the administration and all this stuff is often a reaction of, um, you know, things that have happened in the past that have not gone well. And so over time, we've just sort of built these, you know, essentially checks and balances um, as, as payers and healthcare providers and patients have sort of gone head to head and said, I don't like this thing, you need to change it, or I'm going to, you know, find this loophole and exploit it. Um, that's why we have all sorts of things in place, like 
you know, claims timely filing and then clean claims payment timely filing and all this kind of stuff um, because, you know, there have been things in the past. And those are just things that as a consumer, I care not for at all. I, I don't. I, 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 yeah. I, I, I want to chime in it. on this too. I, I uh, you, you mentioned Nordstrom and let's talk about Nordstrom. And I'm a nerd for misaligned incentives because that is something that I understand, I think, better than I understand a lot of the details of healthcare. Why are they so nice to you at Nordstrom? They're so nice to you because they want you to come back to Nordstrom's forever. They know that if they can get you as a customer when you're shopping with your parents, when you're 10 years old, you know, you might croak in a Nordstrom's. You might literally come back every year and buy more things in a Nordstrom's. And what is that like in healthcare? That's actually like direct primary care. I'm going to use that analogy because Nordstrom's is competing on service because there's a chance that you might come back forever. And these direct primary care doctors are competing on service because it's possible that if you have a good experience, you might stick around and continue to pay them a monthly fee forever. And that's great. That's actually the alignment of incentives. Let's contrast that with big health plans. And I'll, I'll make this story quick and personal. I got kind of chubby over the summer and I bought myself a Peloton and I started eating a little better. And I had the thought that I bet 10 people on this call have had, hey, my health insurance company should be subsidizing this. They should be willing to pay for this on some level. And then I thought, well, why won't they? Here's the reason. When you get your health insurance through your employer, you're going to have new health insurance when you change employers. If you're in America, you probably change employers every 18 to 24 months. And when you look at something like, you know, my chubby self on a Peloton, it's going to take me more than 18 to 24 months to really increase my health and decrease my health risk. And so that health plan that knows that, you know, if you just look at the numbers, I'm probably going to change jobs. I won't, I'll be doing decent, but a lot of people on average are going to change jobs in 18 to 24 months. There's no incentive for them to actually cover a lot of that preliminary stuff. If the actuarial tables don't suggest that it's going to pay off for a few years. And so this is another problem is, it's not like Nordstrom's where they, they try to take care of you for the long term. It's not like direct primary care. A lot of these folks go, look, we're not going to invest in Nick so that he can get healthier so that when he changes health plans down the line, somebody else will reap the benefit of our investment. They don't think that way. And the fact that it's designed around employers' needs rather than the consumer's needs. I mean, it, I would answer your question bluntly, Jim, as people hate their health plans because their health plans are designed for them to hate. And, and I do think it comes back to those miscellaneous centers. Gotcha. No, that's great. So I, I want to be sensitive to everybody's time. Uh, certainly, if people have questions, uh, we, we'd love to have those. But, but let me ask you both candidly. I mean, so how do we how do we how do we take solutions right like decent? How do we get bright people like the Molly Moores and the Nick Somans of the world? Like, how do we scale this right? And that's and, and I guess that's a nice way of me asking, are we doomed for failure? Molly? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, uh, the, here's the nice thing. I've been doing this for a long time. Um, and, 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 and Jim, you've been doing this for a long time. Um, I think in the last... I don't know, maybe five years or so, um, really smart people like Nick have started to look at this space 
as sort of the next frontier that is ready to embrace sort of radical innovation. And I, when I worked as an investor, I looked at 300 companies a year, essentially. And that was from about 2013 to 2016, approximately. And the solutions were light on healthcare understanding, but great on tech. And I think as um, people come to understand and more innovation starts to sort of flow, um, not only out of Silicon Valley, but out of Seattle and Boston and Chicago and Austin, Texas, and, and all the places where innovation is happening, um, you know, in Nashville, Tennessee, I, I would be remiss. Um, and it's strange to me, but Oklahoma seems to be pumping out some really good uh, healthcare innovation companies. Um, trying, we're trying. I know, uh, but, um, but there is starting to be a critical mass um, and of uh, infrastructure essentially that supports the platform plays that are supporting innovation in healthcare. Um, and that's a really good sign. So five years ago, we would look at a company um, in, in the investment uh, team at Cambia, and we would say like, they're gonna have to you know build this and build that and get their SOC one in order to sell to the customer that they wanna sell to and all this kind of stuff. Um, and now there are actually companies sort of building those building blocks to support innovation. And so that to me starts a really radical flywheel of the ease of innovation in healthcare is coming and that will speed up um, new thoughts, ideas, actually making it to the market and people embracing those. So I don't think we're doomed um, I think we had to, you know, sort of get to rock bottom, which I'm just going to go ahead and say was maybe 2020 um, to bounce back <laughs> up again. God, I hope, I hope, I hope that was rock bottom. God, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Nick, are we doomed? We're not doomed, but I, I don't think that opportunistic Silicon Valley entrepreneurs deserve more than maybe 1% of, of the credit. What I actually get inspired by is folks like ZeroCard, uh, folks like Molly that have run what are essentially self-funded trusts and, and they work with self-insured companies. The reason I don't think we're doomed is because I'm going to come back to that number. 90% of the companies with a thousand or more employees have all embraced the self-insured model they're working with smart companies like ZeroCard. They're saving a ton of money. What is the story of America in modern times, if not, you know, the big folks figuring it out and then either, you know, passing it on sometimes or holding it on over, over little guys. That's the, the problem Decent's trying to solve. But we've got this roadmap to more affordable care. If you look at what these self-insured big companies are doing and every enlightened big company in the world is start, has at least considered and is looking at that model. And so, you know, I, I think that what we need to do is we need to figure out how to bring those innovations and those benefits down market. We need to find our allies. And I want to give a shout out to any allies that might be listening. I'm Nick at Decent.com if you want to talk. Uh, I hope there are brokers listening because I think there's an enlightened group of brokers that work with folks like the Health Rosetta, Dave Chase and Sean Shanson, and uh, that are bringing kind of 
the right models to large employers. And then it's just a matter of time until we can connect the dots and, you know, get free in a lot of way of, of the influences of these bucas who may not be evil. I, I agree with Molly. Most people who work at these big bucas are, are trying to do a good job, but there's been a combination of sort of greed and then regulatory um, second, second degree impacts that, that have really made it hard to see that part of the industry doing anything other than what it's been doing, which is continue to escalate costs over time. So no, we're not doomed. Uh, I think hope springs eternal and there's a hell of a reason to be hopeful because of what we're seeing in some of these self-insured models. Jim, I, I want to know what you think, because you've been asking us a lot of questions and I want to know what you think. Uh, I don't think we're doomed, right? Uh, I think, you know, the one thing that drives me crazy is uh, I feel like every day I can read an article about the, how the healthcare system's broken. Right. And the healthcare system like is so far from broken that that's why I feel like we're not <laughs> doing, right. Like the, the healthcare system is doing exactly what we designed it to do. Yeah. Right? That's it. You know, so I, I think once the people, once the people that are holding the checkbooks, right. So this on one end of the spectrum might be the freelance, right. Tech worker living in Austin, right. On the other end of the spectrum, this is the CHRO at a 10,000 employer company. Once they feel empowered and understand, right? That's what that's why hope still springs eternal for me. And I think I think we're really lucky. Nick, you're humble. I'll give you a lot more than 1% of the credit. But I'll tell you, I mean, I think we're lucky that people like you and people like Molly, that employers, right, and and freelancers, right? have people that are not only smart and bright, but are compassionate thinkers and compassionate leaders in healthcare. Uh, we've got two questions uh, coming in real quick, uh, and then we'll wrap up here. Uh, so here's a question to the decent group. You said most of your distribution is through the broker space. What challenges are you finding from brokers? In my experience, this is not me, this is the question, generally speaking, most aren't as innovative as we want them to be. And if they are, they work for a big shop that, again, might have these misaligned incentives. Yep, it's a great question. We absolutely run into that issue. And my, my argument to you is you can figure it out pretty quickly. If you're talking to the wrong broker, the conversation will go nowhere, both because there are a lot of brokers out there that are happy with their book. They're not super innovative. Uh, they may not be as conversant in new models. And you know, shoot, if I could retire on a good book and I'd been working for a while, I, I might consider that too. So what, what I guess the other problem with, with that group is if you're taking a cut of the premium as your commission, then again, there's another misaligned incentive where you might prefer to sell that more expensive plan so you can take a bigger cut. But whoever is asking this question, I guess I would point you to some of what's happening over at Health Rosetta, just as one of multiple examples of where I think brokers are starting to turn the tide in the industry because it's easy to pretend that the bucas are the only game in town, but that's not true anymore. That hasn't been true for a long time. And it's not just that brokers woke up one day and decided, Hey, I'm going to be an enlightened broker. I'm going to change it up and maybe make a little less money. Nobody wants to do that, but their employers and their clients are demanding change. And so I start with the folks over at Health Rosetta and I'm happy to make some introductions for folks that don't know them. They've got a pretty motivated team uh, folks like David Contorno are really thought leaders. And ultimately, whether you do this because it's the right thing to do or not, we are seeing that 
the impact of the success the large employers are having is starting to trickle down and people are demanding better options and better answers from their brokers. So that's not to say there aren't challenges. The other problem is, you know, people are like, you're a what? That administers what? We're a what? You know, our, our model is, is a little bit different. And um, we've been lucky to have some broker partners that uh, will take this jump early with us. But what they found is you come back to them with a net promoter score of 79 instead of 14. You come back to them and say, yeah, we know trend is 7% and your clients are getting quoted 20% higher rates for next year. We're just going to go ahead and not increase our rates at all. Um, and, and I think that if we can create loyalty by creating a great service for the clients, that ends up kind of working for the brokers as well. Perfect. So we got a comment. Well, first, Daniel LeBrod says, amen, Nick. Uh, but Daniel also uh, <laughs> asked us a question here, right? So he said, he said, we're proponents and advocates of healthcare supply chain control, right? And, and also part of the next gen mastermind. So, and, and thank you, Daniel, because he says we're already using zero on our self-funded clients. But, but Molly, Daniel's question is, what are the biggest obstacles of these? Uh, of these? Is it employer adoption? Is it uh, is it employee adoption, like right, uh, right, or is it just the traditional kind of broker channel that's the biggest issue, or is it all of these things? It's a little bit of all of those things. Um, the thing that we're really trying to do, and and we're new, right? So we're still learning. Is what information or what sort of um, journey do we need to share with brokers in order to convince them that um, it'll essentially be a more satisfactory for their client book uh, under this new model. Um, you know, walking people through what the direct primary care experience looks like in contrast with their traditional primary care experience, talking with them about how um, you know, the narrow networks, high quality narrow networks essentially lead to um, better outcomes and lower costs, which means, um, you know, lower premium increases over time. It's a tough sell, honestly, to um, somebody who's just been writing, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield to their book for I don't know how long broad access PPO, they get rate hikes of double digits every single year. Um, you really do sort of have to, um, you know, point to easy to consume talking points and really partner with your brokers to take these messages downstream to their employers, to the individuals. Um, and, and really that's sort of what we're seeing is is following them sort of down their, you know, chain of communication with um, really convincing, essentially, um, consumer experience. Okay. Perfect. Okay. So last, last question. This is a comment. So hello, Natalie Garza. So Natalie's a green imaging who we love, right? You yeah. Know, she says, you know, I hate this to be a commercial, but like we genuinely care, right, about the patient satisfaction from start to finish right? Even if the imaging center isn't part of the staff, right? So at Green Imaging, she says, we don't believe in the bureaucracy or delaying care due to authorizations, et cetera. And Natalie just wanted to say thank you, 
right? Thanks for your business. And she loves working with you guys. And so I, I think that's a wonderful note. Uh, thank you. So, so I, I can't thank you guys enough. Nick, I hope you get the power back soon. Uh, you know, to everybody, <laughs> uh, Molly, thank you so much. It's always good to catch up. For everybody yeah. listening and everyone that's going to download this and listen in the future, I hope this was fun. I hope it was informative, right? Check us out on Twitter. Check us out on LinkedIn. Coming soon, we think Molly Moore might open up a healthcare TikTok account, uh, <laughs> right? Yeah. So we can get to the younger kids, right? That's where they all yeah. want to be. So I I'm looking forward to Molly's uh, TikTok account. I'm going to put uh, on roller skates and talk about healthcare economics. I'm sure that's that'll be riveting. Thousands of followers, millions <laughs> of followers. You know, one video at a time. One video time. <laughs> hey, everybody, thank you so much. Take care. See you guys soon. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Jim. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. We hope you've enjoyed Flying Zero Studios on our destination to Shift Happens with Jim Milloway. Be sure to subscribe and review our podcast. And don't forget to join us for each and every episode as we accelerate the shift to the member-first economy.